Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our Christmas series today, The Hope of the Ages. So turning your Bible to the book of Daniel, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Christ the Better Daniel. I was just a little kid. My Sunday school teacher taught all of us to sing the song, Dare to Be a Daniel. And the thing that struck in my mind was the line, Dare to Stand Alone. I mean, I like the fact, just like the Western movies that were so popular when I was a kid, you know, the lone gunslinger standing by himself against the, the bad guy while everyone else is ducking for cover. I mean, I love the idea of Daniel being just like that. Now, in that time, I also heard the message of salvation, and it went like this. You have to make a personal decision to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. The decision is personal. Your parents' decision, your brothers and your sisters, the decision of all the other kids in your youth group isn't going to cut it. You have to stand alone before your God, and you've got to make a lone decision. Now, I remember to my surprise when I first came upon the idea that it was an admissions course, I found out that in some cultures, people make group decisions. And I came to understand that we in North America, and for that matter, in the Western world, often think more individualistically than people in other cultures. And it's for that reason that there are those in North America who actually imagine, well, that they can live a Christian life with, without being a part of a local church. They think they can stand alone. And of course, for people like that, they might be well served to learn that no New Testament book was ever written to an individual, always to a group, to a church. Even First and Second Timothy and Titus aren't written to an individual, rather to someone who's pastoring a local church. Philemon, although it is written to an individual, was also to be read by the entire church so that they would learn together the kind of relationship that God wanted between a slave owner and a slave. But the decision that we make when we surrender to Christ, that's a decision that we must make alone. We're saved individually, but we're not saved to remain alone. We're rather, we're saved to join a community. And yet, there have been times when some of God's people have been called to be horribly alone. There's an older hymn that goes as follows. It was alone the Savior prayed in dark Gethsemane. Alone he drained the bitter cup and suffered there for me. It was alone the Savior stood in Pilate's judgment hall. Alone the crown of thorns he wore, forsaken thus by all. Alone upon the cross he hung, that others he might save. Forsaken then by God and man, alone his life he gave. And that was his calling. And today, during this Christmas season, I have been in an attempt to portray the greatness of Jesus. I've been comparing Jesus to some of the greatest saints in the Bible. And while we celebrate their great faith and their example to us, we also marvel at the surpassing greatness of the one Jesus who was sent to be our Savior. Well, today I want to speak about the greatness of Daniel. And as we do, let's consider this theme, the one I sang about when I was a kid. Remember that Daniel was called to stand alone. Well, Daniel began his life as a part of a nation that had doggedly become more and more sinful. Second Chronicles 36, 15 to 16 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God. 
despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And then came the year 605 B.C. A foreign king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar sent his army against Jerusalem. He was king of Babylon, that ancient city that was located in what is now the present-day nation of Iraq. While Nebuchadnezzar's army surrounded Jerusalem, besieged it until Jerusalem surrendered. He then robbed the city and the royal palace and the temple of some of its treasures. In short, he humbled the nation, but he did more. He carried King Jehoiakim of Jerusalem off to Babylon as his prisoner, and then he put his own puppet, a man named Jehoiakim, in place after him. But he still wasn't done. He carried away to Babylon the brightest and the best young men who now served his empire. And Daniel was among this first group of captives. Now, please notice that in the year 587 BC, some 18 years later, Nebuchadnezzar utterly destroyed Jerusalem. He burned the temple down to the ground and every other substantial building in Jerusalem, and he deported more Jews to Babylon. But Daniel by then had spent the better part of his life in Babylon. Well, in order to understand the experience that these events had for Israel, we need look no further than Psalm 137. The psalm begins, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there are captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So let me ask you some questions. If you've lost everything, can you still sing? If you live in a society that mocks your values and spits on everything that you think is holy, can you still sing? If it looks like the power of the nations you live in is so much greater than the power of the gospel, can you still sing? Doesn't singing the Lord's song sound hollow after your sins have been exposed and you've been defeated? That's how the entire nation of Israel felt. They had been savaged. Many were killed. They lost everything they had. They were utterly humiliated. How, they asked, can we sing the Lord's song in this strange land, this land that mocks us? Well, a good estimate of Daniel's age when he was first taken into captivity, 606, that he was about 14 years of age. He was a member of the royal family. He was handsome. He was bright, athletic. He had leadership potential. That's why Nebuchadnezzar put him and his friends into the Babylonian training school. He was still young enough that he could be made into a Babylonian and serve his nation well. The last verse of Daniel chapter 1 says that Daniel remained there, that is, in Babylon, until the first year of King Cyrus. You know, that verse is often skipped over by the Bible reader, but let's put it into context. Daniel, at 14 years of age, was taken from Israel to Babylon. That is, as we've said, that occurred in 605 B.C. Eighteen years later, he heard that Babylon had utterly destroyed Jerusalem so that if he ever thought he had a chance of getting back there, that chance was now gone. Then the first year of Cyrus, well, that's known by historians as the year 586 B.C. And that would mean that Daniel spent some 68 or 69 years in Babylon. He would have spent his adult life away from Jerusalem, separated from his parents, his culture, his teaching about his God. The pressures he would have faced to conform to the age in which he lived would have been enormous. He would have been told that the Babylonian chief god was superior to the god of Israel, and as time went on, at least to some, it must have seemed that way. So let's look at some of the pressures he had to conform. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, adopted what was considered an enlightened policy in regards to the nations he had conquered. Instead of simply destroying other countries, something other empires did as well, well, he decided to take advantage of the best minds, the most promising youths of the world, and educate them into leadership for the Babylonian empire. And that really served him well in two ways. One, it allowed him to use the greatest minds of the Middle East to pool the best brains for the service of an advancement of his empire. It would mean that he would forever dominate the world. And second, it brought honor to the nations he had defeated, and in this way, he bought their loyalty and made them supporters of his empire. And so if the brightest and best Jewish young men were his advisors, the Jews would take pride in how their race was honored in this new empire, and Nebuchadnezzar would have their loyalty forever. But Nebuchadnezzar had another policy, and this because he was no fool. His policy was to change the names of the young men being trained to be Babylonian leaders. Daniel, that's his Jewish name. It means, my judge is God. And when this young man came to Babylon, it was changed to Belteshazzar, in which he was renamed after the god Bel, the chief god of the Babylonians. Hananiah means, Yahweh has shown grace. It becomes Shadrach, which means the command of Aku. Aku was a well-known moon god. Mishael means who is what God is. His name is now Meshech, who is what Aku is. Finally, Azariah, whose name means Yahweh has helped, becomes Abednego, servant of Nebu, another Babylonian god. It was Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, you'll fit into my culture, my empire, and my religion, and you will abandon your religion. I suspect many Jews did just what he wanted, as did many of the other nations he also conquered. Daniel, if he was going to be faithful, would have to stand alone. But it was their course of study that would have been disturbing. They became enrolled in the Royal Academy of Babylon. They would have had a long series of language studies. The most important language was Chaldean, which had a, a long history dating back to the time of Abraham, some 1400 years old at that time. Abraham, if you'll remember, came from Ur of the Chaldeans. To this end, the teachers were probably Chaldean priests, instructing them in history, literature, and religion. And that religion, it was occulted. For many reasons, this has been a challenging year, but a year where God has once again proven himself faithful in providing for the needs of this ministry and have allowed Back to the Bible Canada to not only sustain our Bible teaching and engagement efforts, but to expand those efforts through new mediums and into new locations across Canada and in fact around the world. Your faithfulness has made this ministry possible. And our prayer is that you will continue to stand with us in support of this ministry for 2022. Your financial gifts are more than kindness. They are a participation in seeding God's word and a trust in kingdom work. The ministry target this year is to raise $490,000 during the month of December. This is a significant goal, but a necessary one. So please join us in this effort by sending your year-end gift by midnight of December 31st. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Daniel would learn astrology, magical incantations, how to use divining tools to decipher dreams. 
He would be taught how to examine sheep's liver to divine one's future. He would learn how to give someone good luck or bad luck. Furthermore, life in the academy was intense, but if they submitted to it, it presented them with the possibility of enjoying a life of power and influence and wealth. All they had to do was go along with what was presented, and they would have everything that this world had to offer. Now, from reading Daniel chapter 1, we have to assume that Daniel is the one who took leadership. And seeing his resolve, his three friends decide to follow him. And so the group of four Hebrew young men decided in some fashion they'd make their stand. Now, it might seem strange to us that the place they decided to make their stand had to do with the food they ate. See, the Babylonians prided themselves in the fitness and the good health of their leaders. And so the food was designed to give a certain look to the best leaders. But these young men determined to eat only vegetables and drink water. So why do that? Well, the answer had to do with the Jewish diet. Read Leviticus chapter 11. You get a good idea of what's clean and unclean for faithful and observant Israelites. But because Daniel and his three friends couldn't inspect the food they were given, they asked permission to live the most basic diet. And so Daniel decides to make his stand. He'll be respectful to his Babylonian overlords, but he will remain an observant Jew and follow his God. Well, the book of Daniel is a book filled with adventures. By the time the great Nebuchadnezzar dies, even he is forced to admit something that must have been astonishing. Daniel 4, 34 to 35 records the words of Nebuchadnezzar. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Ha! He finally realizes that Daniel's God is God. Those were the days of Daniel's greatest popularity, a popularity that would outlast Nebuchadnezzar and even the great Babylonian Empire. Babylon eventually fell to the Medo-Persian Empire, and in some fashion, seeing Daniel's abilities and his moral character, Daniel again emerges as leader. Darius the Mede is given authority over the city of Babylon, and Daniel is among the three presidents who govern under King Darius. And among the three, Daniel soon distinguishes himself, creating animosity among his rivals. So I want to stop at this part of the narrative and see the clear parallels between Daniel and Jesus. Matthew mentions that after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds noticed that Jesus preached with authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, among other things, Jesus' teaching was so superior to anything anyone had seen before that the crowds came to see him and not the Pharisees. And then, of course, Jesus cut through all the hypocrisy of the religious establishment. And furthermore, he had compassion on the crowds. He didn't burden them down with rules meant to obscure the Word of God. He highlighted the Word of God. His healings, his love, those were all well known. Matthew 27, 17 to 18. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Yeah, pure jealousy. Everything they said, their slander of him, everything was rooted in the green monster of envy. Oh, how they hated him. How they wanted him dead. 
And that's exactly how the enemies of Daniel felt. And so just like with Jesus, a plot was hatched. Daniel 6 verse 5, these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. You know, in the case of Jesus, the Jewish religious establishment had concluded the same. They had tried to trip him up in terms of his Sabbath keeping, but he had exposed their hypocrisy. They tried one hard theological conundrum after another, but he answered each one of them with ease and wisdom. And all the while, the crowd was even more delighted. And so finally, they thought they had a case. He makes himself to be a king, they said, and no friend of Caesar. And here they were referring to Pilate. No friend of Caesar can tolerate a man who pretends to be the king of the Jews. And in these words, they betrayed that their hatred of Jesus was greater than their hope that the Messiah would sit on David's ancient throne and rule the world. They were willing to give up on the hope of Israel out of their hatred for Jesus. Well, in Daniel's case, his enemies came up with what they thought would be a perfect plan, one that would feed King Darius' ego as well as condemn Daniel. For 30 days, the only prayer that could be made would be made to Darius. Like so many years earlier when it came to the food he ate, and when others would have either complied with the king's demand or might have shut their door to pray in secret, Daniel makes a determined decision that his lifelong practice won't be disrupted. Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Yeah, as he's always done. His consistency, his faithfulness, his commitment to the one true and living God would never waver, certainly not for 30 days. This is where the song of Daniel comes from. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Because he's the distinguished and leading president in the land, what he does will be carefully observed. The situation he's in makes him without peers, and he's terribly alone. You know, it's both fascinating and terrible to read about the isolation that Jesus felt in his last hours. He's been separated from his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had taken them to pray. It was there he was arrested and then started a series of not one but six trials, each filled with lies and intrigue. And all the while, his scattered disciples. Peter had said that although everyone else would forsake him, Peter would not, even if it cost him his own life. And all the others assured that they would do the same. And then, of course, came those horrible moments that Peter would never forget for the rest of his life. Not once but three times, he would deny that he had ever known Jesus. There is a telling moment recorded by Luke about the third denial. It's in Luke 22, 60 to 61. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That is, after Jesus was slapped and mocked and beaten in the trial before the Sanhedrin, as he was being led out, and he was received by the Roman guard, at that very moment, Peter was busy denying his Lord. And then the rest of the trial, the scourging and the nailing him to the cross, Jesus bore it alone, deserted and forsaken, like Daniel, only to a degree that Daniel would have not known possible. He stood forsaken by man and God, so much so, he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, but Jesus was nailed to the cross. In Daniel's case, the Lord sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions so that Daniel was delivered from death. In Jesus' case, no angel was sent, 
but he suffered hour after hour as his enemies watched in fascination. But of course, in a manner which Daniel could not have imagined, Jesus too was freed from the lion's den by his resurrection from the dead. See, the analogy between the experiences of these two men is remarkable. And yet as great a man as Daniel was, he would surely bend his knee and acknowledge one far superior to himself. And since we are in the Christmas season, it's important that we understand the baby in the manger precisely in that way. Indeed, when Jesus and Mary took baby Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord, Simeon took the baby from his mother's arms and held him. And Luke 2.34 says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for a fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And as we celebrate Jesus, let's also remember that he is the child who came as a sign from God. And as Simeon said, the child is appointed. That is, the child has a destiny from God. And a part of that destiny is that this child in the manger is a sign that is opposed. Jesus knew that all of his life. And in that fashion, the loneliness of Jesus was a loneliness that he suffered all of his life, where he could turn only to his heavenly Father. He came to that which was his own. The scripture says, but his own did not receive him. And the reason we must come alone and stand before him and repent of our sins and do our business with him, because he who stood alone demands we stand before him alone as well. Thanks so much, John. John, Jesus had been described as a man of sorrows. He understood grief, even when those most close family and friends turned their backs, the loneliness he must have experienced. What does that say to us about who Jesus is? Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's important to understand, as Isaiah had told us about the Messiah, that he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, acquainted with suffering. Um, I So much has been written and said about the humor of Jesus, and I, I'm not opposed to that. But we need to recognize that sorrow, grief, and suffering were his constant companions. It is who our Lord and Savior was. And we need to also love the Lord more for it because these sufferings were for our benefit. And uh, so when we think about our Lord, uh, we need to think in that fashion. So think about even the child that came, that he came uh, to be our suffering Savior. And, uh, you know, these kind of things are important for us as we go through our own sufferings, that we consider ourselves one with Christ through these sufferings. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Advent season is a special time of year, but it can get lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. This month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as they walk us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with an Advent celebration video series. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill his purpose for our lives. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy in challenging days. 
share the good news to those in need of renewed hope. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.